this edition of Create the Village, the office just won't be where you go to do your heads down work. It's going to be instead this place where you kind of you connect with the brand or with your coworkers. It's it's very different. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of the Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Deirdre, welcome back. And I I guess for those who were not with us um, the first time we chatted, which um, is about a year ago now, or maybe a little bit shy of a year, I want to do a quick introduction just to let everyone know who you are and why we're having this conversation and they'll figure it out pretty quickly because it doesn't take long to get right back in the saddle with some of these issues. So let me just stop and say to to the audience that um, Deirdre Woolard is an editor at uh, Million Acres and for those who don't know, that's a division of Motley Fool. She's a writer and editor with a couple decades of experience covering just about anything you can think of as it has to do with real estate, from luxury, residential real estate, to the latest in prop tech or property technology. And that's the use of information technology to help individuals and companies research, buy, sell, and manage real estate. Um, She created the Ask a Realtor feature at Realtor.com and has led marketing and communications at top residential real estate brokerage. Real estate investing is, as we all know, a family tradition, and she comes from a long line of landlords, renovators, contractors, and currently invested from Massachusetts to California. So in other words, if it's real estate, it's Deirdre. <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Deirdre has a, uh, an MFA in writing from Spalding University. So Deirdre, again, welcome back. And I reflected with you just before we opened the mics, if you will, that we had, when we first chatted, we were there lamenting that we could be in this horrible situation for 60 days and God forbid, even more extreme it could go as many as 90 days. And here we are now, almost a year later, and as you appropriately said, no end in sight. So then we were a month into the pandemic. And of course, now that it's a year later, I I would ask you a number of things about what's changed. So let me, if you don't mind, let me sort of jump into that. Back in April last year, we were discussing your reporting about the disconnect that existed between local, state, and federal governments concerning the whole issue of rent and mortgage moratoriums. And you were sharing your that you were finding very little communication between local and national leaders in that regard. And as a result, renters and homeowners were deeply confused about who was on first, what the rules of the road were, etc., etc. Has any of that changed? Has it improved? What's the story? I think it's evolved, but I wouldn't say it's changed. In some ways, it's gotten worse. I mean, a good example is the CDC federal eviction moratorium. So uh, 
a judge in Texas declared it unconstitutional. And now the Justice Department is fighting that. And that puts anybody who was using that federal eviction moratorium as their guideline in a complete state of confusion. And at the same time, we have this variety of state and local eviction moratoriums that have some have expired, some expired and got reinstated, some expired and eviction courts are getting flooded. There's still this just really big lack of communication and lack of understanding on how this all can be applied. And it's sort of similar to what we're seeing with mask wearing and with uh, businesses reopening. You know, we've seen like in New York, the rules have changed on how many people can be in a particular venue or whether you can have outside dining, things like that. So it's not necessarily just eviction moratoriums that are having this confusion. It really is happening on on a whole national basis around a variety of subjects. Well, when I hate to say it, but I all you have to do is watch the news and it just reaffirms everything you just said about there's no there are no standards. It's almost as if we have not agreed that there is a way to behave that helps to move this forward. And so everybody's just sort of in a free-for-all doing their own thing. Um, that may be local cities or it may be states or... Yeah, it's a, it's a jumbled mess. And I remember you were particularly concerned about the small mom-and-pop owners. Uh, in fact, the let's say the small businesses that relied on just the monthly cash flow in order to eke out a living. And so in that case, we were talking about someone who didn't have a mortgage, but who was relying on the renters in order to make uh, monthly rent payments. And if that didn't happen, then their world was upside down. And in many of those cases, the renters were protected by moratoriums and the owners had no regular cash flow. And that seemed like a missing. So whatever happened to that category of owner? Have they had any relief through the policy programs and so on that have been adopted? A little bit. Uh, I was pleased when President Biden was speaking on this. He did mention mom and pop landlords specifically in one of his speeches, but there's just a lot of work to be done. There's the rental payment assistance program, but a lot of landlords may not know how to apply for that or if their tenants should apply or they should apply. So there's just still so much confusion. And one of the things that I was wondering is if we were going to see commercial and residential landlords starting to sell. I'm not seeing that yet, but I'm thinking that could be something that's coming because now we're dealing with just about a year of these eviction moratoriums in place and landlords not getting rent. There comes a breaking point for everyone, and I think that could be something that starts to happen. So so let's keep that going. So we all can, on one hand, relate to with a certain amount of passion and care for our fellow man that when the Biden administration sort of extended the rent and mortgage moratoriums until later this year, you say, good thing, it's needed, people are suffering, etc., etc. But at some point, these moratoriums are going to end and the back payments for mortgages and rent will come due. And I'm not aware of any talk about forgiving the back payments and... <laughs> You know, after a year's worth of moratorium, I would assume a bubble on the amount due is developing. 
And those are going to be sizable amounts of mortgages that will have accrued. And, you know, when you get right down to it, what does all this mean? Because are we just creating a tsunami that's going to hit the shores at the, the minute these moratoriums are lifted? Definitely that's already happening in some of the local and state courts where we are seeing that uh, tsunami of uh, eviction proceedings. But the other point that you mentioned is really important is back rent. And some of these landlords may just never recover these funds. So if you had your own you know, small business as a small landlord and you're, you expect a certain amount of rent every month and you're just not ever going to recoup that, it's, it's very hard to build up your savings again. People have gone through their emergency funds in order to stay afloat. So there are some real concerns there. So, so is anyone talking about how to manage through these transitions? Because I haven't really heard it. In fact, it's almost as if we're still on the front end and the back end is so far away. I just haven't heard the conversation. I'm not seeing those conversations happen either. Uh, a recent study from Avail, which is part of Realtor.com, showed that around a quarter of landlords are owed about $5,000 or more, which is a pretty significant amount. And it really is going to be a problem for a lot of these these landlords. And I really feel like it's happening also on the commercial side too, because you figure those smaller commercial landlords probably more likely to have tenants that are small businesses restaurants, certainly, which have been struggling. There are fewer eviction bans there, but it's a we've seen already just the huge toll on small businesses in uh, during the pandemic, and that's also affecting the smaller landlords of commercial properties, too. So, well, since the last time we spoke, Deidre, there have been, you know, I've had a number of guests on the podcast, as you know, and um, <laughs> we've had predictions of all kinds. Some have predicted almost seismic changes in life as we know it. I've had some guests who have sort of lamented the plight of cities and that there was going to be this massive exodus by those who could exodus to exurban or rural communities, leaving the cities and suburbs so that they wouldn't have to be exposed to the people, too many people who could be carrying the COVID disease. But then I've also had other guests that question the future of office space and given the way people work from home using technology, they've questioned whether you need the traditional office arrangements and so on. You have a pretty broad view of real estate. So what is your reporting about our cities and any and commercial spaces, how that's going to play out over time? I think we're just in such an interesting time. Some of that original urban exodus appears to be over. There are people going back to cities. But the other thing I think is really interesting is they're testing out smaller cities where the cost of living is cheaper. So uh, Redfin recently had some data. Prices are rising in cities like Baltimore and Cleveland, not really places where you've seen a lot of prices rise in recent years. And the part about the offices is really fascinating, too, because everyone that I've interviewed and talked to lately is talking about the hybrid work environment. So what that means is maybe you go to the office a couple days a week, but you're not having that five-day work week. You're not having that regular commute. And what this means, too, is the office itself is going to change. So that open floor plan thing, that's probably going to 
go away a little bit, you're going to see those private phone booth style rooms because everybody needs to talk to each other who may or may not be in the office. So you'll do, you'll still be doing a lot of zooming and you know, the office just won't be where you go to do your heads down work. It's going to be instead this place where you kind of, you connect with the brand or with your coworkers. It's, it's very different. And the question that I have is just, is this the future or is this just a temporary thing? It's one of the things that has been most fascinating to me about this whole thing is human behavior and how that impacts what, what happens with real estate. Yeah, that's interesting. Anecdotally, I can tell you that we have 26,000 square feet. I assure you, when my lease expires in a couple of years, we will be in about maybe half of that, maybe even less. We would have a lot more technological engagement and we will have a lot of hoteling type of arrangements. So people will come in, use the space, we'll have collaboration rooms and a lot of people will engage when they have to engage in collaboration spaces where they can hook up to technology, but for the most part, I think we're going to permanently have a certain level of working from home and working from the office. So I think you're, you're right on point there, at least in our case, we can see that. So let's, let's go back to housing for a moment. Marsha Fudge. So here you have a former suburban mayor and congresswoman from Cleveland. And she was recently sworn in as Secretary of HUD. You recently wrote, uh, let me get this right, Secretary Fudge has a long-standing commitment to making lives better, and that may help her steer HUD through what is likely to be a very challenging period. Uh, For investors, a well-funded HUD could mean more vouchers and programs to support landlords as well as aspiring homeowners. So what does her appointment by the Obama administration tell us? And maybe we all have this crystal ball, some better than others. What can we expect from her during the Biden administration? What do you think? Well, I think the first thing that I'm expecting is that HUD's budget will be stronger again. Under Dr. Carson, there were just a lot of budget cuts for HUD. And Secretary Fudge just knows that HUD needs to have the funds available to strengthen housing. And I feel like that she knows really well that it's not just housing. It's also about the programs that help people become financially strong and independent and able to maintain housing. It's one of our core missions at Million Acres and the Motley Fool, financial literacy. And that's something that Secretary Fudge is definitely aware of as being a gap as well. And I really like that she wants to encourage black home ownership, which has been always tracked a little bit below historic levels of white home ownership. And she has mentioned that down payment programs are an important part of that. So I I hope that we're going to see both more affordable ho- housing as well as more programs to really encourage home ownership rate and, and diversity in home ownership. Well, she will certainly have a chance to make her mark, right? <laughs> because yes. Because I think the proverbial um, out of the box thinking is going to have to come into play as we try to process some of what we've been talking about already on this podcast, but looking forward about ways to change some of the trend lines that have been playing out. And so 
I want to stay on the trend line discussion for a moment and tap into your view of trends in the real estate market, just broadly speaking. Vardy Partners um, you know, is a global investment firm. They made a major announcement last year around, I think, November. They had raised $2.6 billion, with a B, dollars, and they said they planned to invest in what they called the historic market dislocations and economic disruption resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. In spite of the pandemic, some real estate sectors, however, you know, like industrial, certainly some, res some segments of the residential market, have done well and have grown rapidly. And I had a guest on, I think a couple weeks ago, who also lamented the number of single-family homes that have been purchased by large investors, effectively becoming absentee landlords. And obviously, over time, that's going to play out in some way that certainly impacts the market. So are you seeing consolidation where large investors are benefiting? And just generally, what trends are you reporting in the real estate market broadly? I would definitely agree with your past guest. That's that's what I'm seeing as well. You have to think that the existing home price now it's uh, over three hundred thousand dollars. So that's that's very expensive, and that is going to push more people who want a single family uh, rental properties. You've got Invitation Homes. That was the company that grew during the Great Financial Crisis. They just started a joint venture. They want to buy a billion dollars of homes in 2021, and that's just one company. Yeah. And I really believe that smaller landlords are better for communities and that the consolidation kind of limits opportunities for individuals to achieve financial success through real estate. And the other trend that kind of goes along with this is what we're seeing is also this build to rent movement. So home builders are building for individual owners, but now they're also building for institutional investors that own and operate a whole community. And the other factor you see is some of the iBuyers like uh, Zillow, Open Door, Redfin. They're also buying up homes and then they're selling them to institutional buyers as well as to individual buyers. So you've just got this massive, massive consolidation that you mentioned going on. Uh, so do you have some opinions that you want to <laughs> voice? Like, <laughs> are we, are the, any of these good things or bad things? Because what you just described, those trends, I, I can see them playing out in very, very bad ways from a community yes. standpoint, right? And you sort of alluded to that because the smaller, the more personal. You get it to be just a commodity and the house is just a commodity and then you get a very impersonal way of relating to communities. The house is just one more number on a sheet of paper and there's not a family in there quite the same way that it's related to if it's a small property owner that has two or three homes. So. What do you, just give me sort of your, distill it down into a few opinions. <laughs> that may, I may be dangerous <laughs> in asking you to do that. Quite a few opinions. Well, <laughs> one thing is that at least we've seen with some of these large portfolio owners, there have been a lot of complaints about maintenance issues. And there's just a, a 
it's harder to get maintenance issues done when you're dealing with a larger company versus dealing with smaller landlords. And also it does come down to the fabric of the community because these smaller landlords tend to be the types of people who uh, they participate in community councils and things like that. They have a stake in zoning, in what comes into a community. They're usually very engaged on a local political level. And that's really important when you have you know, a, a large part of the community owned by a company that's in another state that doesn't really care what happens in the community, that starts to change the fabric of a town over time. It's not something that happens really quickly, and it's not something that may even be noticed until it's already really gone on for a long time. But it's important because communities are really their own individual universe. And I think that's an important thing. We want to have communities that are healthy and we want to have people engaged in those communities on local politics and caring about the people in the community as a whole. So did you, so you, you sort of touched on this a moment ago, but what do you think about the proliferation of rent to own programs or projects that are cropping up? And I, some at scale, but some of them small. What Do you have a view of that? I think that done right, it's a great idea because it can be a path to home ownership. I think that the problem is, is that sometimes there are risks. Sometimes there are unscrupulous people. There are sometimes bad contracts where people end up putting in money but aren't actually getting a stake of the property they're investing in until the end. And they can, you know, if they, if they, stop being able to pay halfway through the program? Do they not have equity? Those are the kinds of concerns that I'm worried about with programs like that. Okay. All right. So we have a lot to keep our eyes on as this continues to evolve. And, and I thank you for that perspective. As a, a final question, I, I want to ask you about your podcast because I understand you're doing your podcast and you wanted... Well, tell us what, what you're trying to do with the podcast, what, what you're covering, what your sweet spots are. Uh, our podcast really just covers everything real estate investing. And I've just really been talking to a lot of different people. I've been talking to some CEOs. I've been talking to some individual renters, who uh, rental property owners who've been building up their portfolios. So it's really kind of a wide, a wide spectrum of, of real estate. And I'm just really trying to bring forward information that individuals can use, maybe some companies they haven't heard of, or learning from other people's success stories about about how to build up uh, investing through real estate. It doesn't necessarily have to be owning rental properties. It can be short-term rentals. It can be real estate investment trust, real estate crowdfunding. There's just a lot of ways that people can build, build their successful financial future through real estate. So I have some catching up to do, and I will do that. What's the name of the podcast? It's the Million Acres Podcast. Oh, the Million Acres Podcast. Okay, great. Okay. No. Thank you. Well, Deidre, this was a pleasure as usual. I, let me ask you, are there any closing comments or remarks that you want to leave the audience with as a result of our conversation? I would just say that pay attention to what's happening in your community and stay engaged with what's happening because affordable housing is an issue that affects all of us. And so I think it's important for all of us to, to stay aware of those issues. All right. Deidre, thank you so much again for, for this. And I look forward to the continued conversation because I think we're going to be in this in some way, shape or form for quite a while longer. 
I agree. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 